Hello. Presenting this podcast for the RSA is a privilege. But sometimes I pick up a new book that's been chosen for Bridges with a slightly heavy heart. When I opened a copy of The New Political Capitalism by Joe Zamet Lucia, well, it was one of those moments, a, a 270-page business book focused on the well-worn territory of the wider social responsibilities of business. I have to admit it wasn't an enticing prospect. But how wrong I was. Compelling, wide-ranging, acute, well-written. The book I will today discuss with its author feels to me to be one of the most powerful we have ever featured. And what's more, as many businesses face huge scrutiny over their involvement in Russia, it's also incredibly timely. Welcome to the podcast that tries to make sense of our new reality. This is Bridges to the Future with Matthew Taylor, brought to you by the RSA. So I'm delighted to welcome Joe Zamet Lucia, the author of The New Political Capitalism, How Businesses and Societies Can Thrive in a Deeply Politicized World. Now, as I said, Joe, I want to get on to the fact that these issues are absolutely at the front of our minds. But before we get into that, because we, we could spend a lot of time on that, the core thesis of the book, How Businesses and Societies Can Thrive in a Deeply Politicized World, share that core thesis. So, you know, capitalism has been quite resilient because it's been adaptable with the times. And I think we're entering a new phase of capitalism, which I like to call political capitalism. And this new phase shatters the idea, in my view, that business can be somehow apolitical, which is, you know, a trope that many people have expressed for many years, if not decades. So the thesis of the book is that business is part of our panoply of political institutions. It has a political role to play. And by political, I don't mean party political or electoral politics. I mean politics in the sense of how the mechanism by which we collectively decide what sort of society we want to live in. And business has a big role to play in that. And, you know, over the past few decades, the window of political debate, the window of political ideas has been relatively narrow. We all thought liberal democracy had won. It was the end of history. And, you know, there was not much to talk about except, you know, for minor tweaks here and there in the breadth of political debate. Well, that's all over, as we know from the current situation. I mean, who would have thought 30, 20 years ago that the second largest economy in the world would be run by an authoritarian regime? So the breadth of political ideas has increased. Political debate is once again, the battle of political ideas is once again rampant. And business cannot abstain from that. And as you have just mentioned, they have to take political positions, not only on big issues like whether to be in Russia or not in the current situation, but things that affect their business top to bottom, from the political meaning of brands 
be they corporate brands or product brands, to everyday operational issues like should we have gender neutral bathrooms. So political issues have become integral to business strategy, business purpose and what business stands for. This thesis, Joe, it goes so much further than, I mean, as I said at the top of the program, that, you know, I picked up the book and I mistakenly thought, oh my goodness, this is going to be another one of these good business books. And I have had a, I've had a kind of aversion to those books, which goes all the way back to, I think the first one I read was by Steve Hilton, you know, currently a kind of pro-Trump shock jock in America now and, and erstwhile Cameron, David Cameron advisor. And I think he wrote a book on good business that I read 20 years ago. And ever since then, I thought, I, I can't read another one of these bloody books about, you know, uh, and the environmental and social responsibilities of business and how business has grown a conscience, et cetera, et cetera. But you, you go much further in this particular point, which is about politics, because actually, in a funny kind of way, those other books, those other good business books, are kind of almost apolitical. What they seem to suggest is, look, there's a set of boxes, and as long as you tick those boxes and you care about the right things and you get the PR right, then you can avoid this difficulty. You don't have to face problematic issues. You can sail on making profit and smelling of roses at the same time. And your book is very different because your book is kind of saying, no, 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 Politics is always there. It's always messy. It's always difficult. That's right. And, you know, it's it's been convenient to be able to say we're apolitical because as soon as you mention the word politics, so many people react with a kind of aversion because they, you know, they associate politics with the narrow interpretation of, you know, fighting elections, the dirty business of lobbying and all this sort of stuff. But the the stance I've taken is that's not what politics is. It's, as I said earlier, the mechanism by which we determine what sort of society we live in. And it goes to the heart of what business in general and businesses, individual businesses in particular, what they're for. Why do we have businesses? And businesses are there to make our lives better. They're not there to make money. They're there to make our lives better in some way. And if they can do that well, then they'll make money. So if their position in life, if their raison d'etre in our society is to make our lives better, what better lives means is an essentially political issue. It's nothing more than a political issue. So they can't avoid being intensely and at core political organizations. Yeah, and and that's one of the wonderful things about the book is the way you pull apart attempts, as it were, to depoliticize, to, to, as it were, suggest that certain things have, there is no alternative to them. Like, you know, you're very critical of that kind of story of globalization that says, well, this isn't a political thing. This is just the inevitable march of progress. And you point out that globalization is a highly contested, in many ways, very problematic territory. Now, I want to get back into this critical thesis later on in our conversation, Joe, but but let's think about where we are now and think about the pressure that has been placed on companies that have investment or involvement in Russia. Talk about Russia as a case study for the ideas in your book, because I feel having read the book and then watching the conversations taking place and seeing these businesses being often kind of wrong-footed by the sudden scrutiny that they're under, that in many ways it exemplifies your thesis. 
Yes, well, you know, Russia, I think, is a good example to take because it's, to be fair, it wasn't just business that has been wrong-footed by Russia. You know, I mean, we've had governments worldwide, you know, we've had the Obama-Hillary Clinton red-button reset with Russia. We've had Germany with their Russland Verkehr, this sort of Russian understanding idea, getting closer and closer to Russia, getting more and more dependent on Russia. And the Russian understanding has proven to be a big Russian misunderstanding. So it's not just business that has been wrong-footed. You know, we, we were all taken in to some extent. But I think the business perspective, if we just take that, is to see these countries like Russia primarily as a commercial opportunity. So, you know, there's money to be made to go into Russia. Russia's become rich. They've got lots of wealthy people. There's money to be made. There's oil. There's natural resources. So let's go in because there's money to be made. And that's fine. There's nothing wrong with that. But there are other aspects to consider. So, you know, through doing business with Russia, we have enriched Russia. We have essentially enabled the creation and the flourishing of an authoritarian regime, which has now come back to bite us. And we've done the same with China, but maybe we'll come to China later. So, you know, most business people and most business leaders have never been asked or trained to think in that political way in saying, if I go into Russia, I'm essentially enabling the rise of an authoritarian regime. Now, is that something I want to do? Those sorts of discussions are very rare in business because things are looked at primarily from a commercial perspective, maybe exclusively from a commercial perspective. So I think it's this broader vision of the political implications of business activity that is now having to come much more to the fore. Yeah, and I think there's a couple of dimensions of that, Joe. I mean, the first one is, I remember someone a few years ago saying to me, it's not possible to do clean business in Russia. You know, if you're in Russia and you're making money in Russia, you're going to be doing stuff that's a bit dodgy because that's just how the system works. And I think not only have businesses seen Russia as just a commercial opportunity, but they've liked to kind of imply that somehow they can be in a system that is that is corrupt and oligarchical and problematic in all sorts of ways. And somehow they rise above it, which I think is, is difficult to believe. But the other point I'd want to make is that you're right, of course, Joe, when you say that government has been inconsistent in Russia. But I think that's an important point to your thesis, which is it's not good enough for businesses to say, well, look, my government's being hypocritical about Russia or Saudi Arabia or China because they're complaining about human rights abuses or whatever. But in the end, they'll take investment from these countries. I, as a business, therefore, don't need to worry about whether I'm being consistent with my values, because if government's not being consistent, then I'm fine. And I think the other thing that Russia has shown is that if the governmental position is inconsistent and you're kind of on the shirt tails of that, you too will find yourself in the firing line of public opinion. You will. But these things work in tandem. You know, it's a complex system where everything affects everything else. So it's very difficult for business, I think, businesses to say, 
well, my government is making nice with Russia and, you know, we're inviting people over and we're waving the flag and we're trying to get them, or China, for instance, to get them to buy our, our government bonds and, you know, all this sort of thing. But I'm going to stand away from that and as a matter of principle, not do business with China. That's, I think, a very difficult position for any business to take. But I think that it's a question of, because we're all dragged in by the prevailing culture around us. But I think it's a question of, of reflection. And it's a question of understanding the potential issues that might arise. You know, China maybe is an even more difficult situation than Russia, because it's a much bigger market. You know, there's much more money to be made, much more business to be had there. And then you get into positions like, for instance, HSBC, just to pick one, which is now so heavily dependent, a British company, a British registered company, so heavily dependent on China that they have to sign up to the document that removes freedom from Hong Kong. Now, that's a very, very uncomfortable position to be in. And it's easy to be dragged into that position. Now, if you do it consciously and you say, okay, you know, I'm going to do this. This is what I want to do because this is who I am as a business and I'll take the consequences and I've thought those through, you know, that's fine. Businesses can make whatever individual decisions they want. It's when these things take you by surprise, mm. when, you, when you expect one thing and then suddenly the world seems to change, even though the signs of those changes have been apparent for mm. 20 years. Well, exactly. And I think that what you're saying now, Joe, and what the book is saying is that the Pontius Pilate position just doesn't hold in the modern world. And, you know, I'll give you another example of that, which is I was close friends with somebody who provided a contract to the public sector, a contract which was very, very unpopular because of the impact it had on some very vulnerable people in terms of their, their eligibility for benefits. And he used to say to me, we get all this stick from the fact that we make money on this contract, but we don't define the contract. It's the government that defines the contract. But then when we're getting the stick, government's nowhere to be seen. Ministers aren't jumping up on saying on TV and saying, no, you shouldn't really criticise the contractor because it's us that wrote the contract. And I, I think that the point here is, you know, this kind of position, which is, well, look, we make money in whatever way we can, and we're not responsible for the political context in which we make it. We're not really responsible for the kind of political consequences of this. That's just not a position that I think what you're saying, particularly in relation to big business, it's just not a position that's tenable anymore. No, it isn't. And it's a question, I think, of, as I outline in the book, of learning how to think politically, as well as business leaders have learned how to think financially and commercially. And in the past, that maybe, you know, over the last, since the 70s, 80s, 90s, that wasn't really essential because the world was a different place. But now it is essential because it affects businesses top to bottom and it has consequences both in the short term and in the long term. So I think it's a question of, business leaders honing their political skills and learning how to think politically. And that's not easy because, as I cover in the book, these are two fundamentally different cultures, different tribes, think in a very different way and learning how to think the other way and how to see the world from a totally different lens is very difficult. 
but I think it's essential and it needs to be incorporated into what executive teams think about, do, and how they define their business purpose and strategy. So, Joe, in the final part of our conversation, I want to return to the core thesis because actually this is not just a book that's about business. It's also incorporates, and this is where you get to by the end of the book, actually quite a different vision of society. And I want to come to that because it's one of the things that I found exciting about the book. But a couple of things which you don't put as much emphasis on as maybe you could have done. I'm just interested about that. So one is there's not much at all in the book about about SMEs. And of course, they're a very big part of the economy. Is the kind of view there that in a sense, these organizations, it isn't realistic for them to be kind of in this or or that in a sense, their significance is not such that they're likely to find themselves in the firing line. I mean, maybe, maybe it was just, the, you know, you cover an awful lot in the book and maybe it just wasn't realistic. I just, I wonder what your view is about, about as it were, whether small and medium-sized enterprises too need to think more politically. You know, I think horses for courses, you know, your corner sandwich shop is not going to be fundamentally affected by political issues. I mean, it's affected, of course, by cultural issues in that now they have to have vegetarian sandwiches as well as as meat-based sandwiches. And maybe, you know, in time, they might also have to start saying where they source their materials and all this sort of stuff. But their political impact and therefore their political exposure is not as great as a Shell or a Boeing or, or, right. or a huge corporation. But it can very much be their brand. I mean, as you make, you make the point about Patagonia, of course. So Absolutely. for lots of SMEs, the, the fact that they are, I don't know, cooperatives or vegan or, you know, sourced totally ethically, that is actually kind of core rationale for them. Yes. And those sorts of companies, I mentioned Patagonia, I mentioned a very, very small company called Tony's Chocolonely. You know, they have taken explicit political positions as part of the DNA of who they are. And they have made a success of that. So it's, it's part of their core being, of their core differentiation. And they have made a success of that. And I think we'll see more and more of those. And as the world becomes more political, they will become ever greater challenges to the bigger companies who will find it more difficult. So, you know, Tony's Chocolonely is upsetting the whole chocolate industry by what it's doing. And it's a tiny company. And, you know, Patagonia is hugely successful in its field because it's taken a political position as the way to build its competitive advantage. So, and for SMEs, and increasingly, as you know better than I do, more and more businesses are being founded and are growing on the basis of a socio-political position, as opposed to on the basis of let's make more money. So this is yet another pressure on the bigger companies who naturally are, are more difficult to turn around. So they do have a big role as a challenger role, as a, a kind of changing people's perception role, and as many are finding, as a way of creating competitive advantage in the world of political capitalism. Absolutely. The other issue that obviously it runs through the book, but in a sense, there wasn't a point at which you concentrated on it as, as much as I thought you might, is around competition. And the very idea of competition, because clearly competition is a driver of innovation and productivity and achievement. 
But yet, competition brings with it, as it were, inherent kind of problematics. And you know, I know the world of politics much more than the world of business. And I've always thought that one of the reasons we're in the position we're in and that we haven't had the kind of democratic renewal, the cleaning up of politics, the reform of politics we need, is that ultimately, or however much politicians say they care about this, what they care about is winning. And so, for example, to put it in a rather trite way, I would often say that every politician I speak to would say that they wish more people voted in elections. But then if I gave them the choice of losing on an 80% turnout or winning on a 10% turnout, they would, of course, choose the latter. The same issue for business, which is, you know, a lot of businesses would say, look, if I was a monopoly and I didn't have to worry about the competition, but I would be an incredibly benign figure. I would do all sorts of wonderful things. I'd pay my workers more, et cetera, et cetera. But you know those bastards down the road, it's them that I'm competing with. In fact, I remember reading some research, I don't know, 15 years ago about management consultancies and about their kind of ethical purpose. And what this research found was the prevalence within management consultancy A of a critique of management consultancy B. It was that they used the misdemeanors or the alleged misdemeanors of their competitor as a way of comforting themselves about their own kind of lack of ethical kind of commitment. So how does competition work in your kind of thesis? So in my view, without competition, we're lost. So let's take your comment about politics in this country, that that we haven't had the democratic renewal. Well, we can't have the democratic renewal because there's not enough political competition. You know, we've essentially got a duopoly in this country where, you know, power shifts from one to the other and everybody's relatively comfortable and there isn't the opportunity for challenger parties to arise and drive that renewal. So I see the same in business. The idea that if I'm a monopoly, I'm going to be benign is for the birds. You know, we've seen it many times. It just doesn't work. I mean, that's one of my objections to nationalization, that you're giving individual organizations far too much power when you nationalize them. You're reducing, you're getting rid of competition and you're shifting their focus from the customer and society to government. So I think, you know, competition is the driver of progress. I mean, would the big car giants have moved to electric cars had it not been for Tesla? The answer to that must be no. So it's essential that we have competition to drive people away from their comfortable life where they can say, well, you know, I'll just sit here, collect rents and really don't do anything different very much because it's just too comfortable as it is. So competition, in my view, is essential to progress. And when you see misbehavior, when you see customers being taken for a ride, when you see things not moving forward and stagnating, you can almost always drill it down to a lack of competitive pressure. But then, Joe, address the the flip side of that, which is the way in which competition is then used as an excuse for inactivity. And, And actually, if you look at the corporate sector, if you look at safety, for example, 
where you've seen really major advances in safety, it has come when an industry has finally realized that if one company gets it very badly wrong, it damages the whole sector. So both in aviation and in oil exploration, disasters led to the whole sector agreeing to a regulatory framework that was primarily voluntary, then reinforced by legislation. And what I Sometimes when I talk to business leaders, what I say to them is, look, the summit of your kind of ethical commitment is when you're not just talking about your own company, but you're trying to provide leadership for your whole sector. And that requires us to go beyond competition, doesn't it, John? Yes, I think this is a very difficult balance. You know, policy initiatives are always behind the times, as you know, because they're slow and ponderous. So sometimes when companies try to do better, it feels that they put themselves at a competitive disadvantage. So there's the story of Nike, I think I cover it in the book, I can't remember, where they tried to clean up their supply chains and they found that the compliance system, the cost of the compliance system to keep tabs on their full supply chain, the cost per shoe of that was more expensive than the cost of the actual materials to make the shoe. So their view was, well, I can't compete if I do what I see as the right thing. So then companies like that say, well, there's only one solution here. You know, we need policy to make this mandatory for everybody. So that again has driven progress. Now, the flip side, which what you talked about, the aviation sector, etc., is when these sectors are very small and can get together and decide, you know, we will set the standards for our whole industry, I mean, which is what Facebook has been trying to do. You know, we'll set the standards for our whole industry and we'll set them as suits us. And then there's another side of that where a standard defense, as we know, is, well, you can't prosecute me because I'm using industry best practice. And industry best practice may be very poor. But this is the interaction between policy and business. And both sides have to be hard-nosed about this. Politics and policy has to balance encouraging industry with holding industry to account. And all too often, the holding industry to account sort of, to some extent, takes second place. But if you look at when that happens, it's always in concentrated, highly powerful industries like the auto industry in Germany. So it's, again, a lack of competition. It's when industry sectors can get together and impose their will that you get this stagnation. When you have highly competitive sectors with lots of people doing lots of things, it's more easy, it's much easier for policy to hold the laggards to account. But when you have highly concentrated industry sectors, and some are unavoidable, like aviation, as you mentioned, then it becomes much more difficult because the political power of that industry sometimes overwhelms the kind of political system's ability to hold them to account. Yeah, I, I guess that's right. Although we may have to agree to differ here slightly, but I've also heard often from politicians that very diffuse sectors made up of lots and lots of small businesses are much harder to engage with. So if I give you an example from the UK, it would probably be 
kind of the care sector made up of lots and lots and lots of small providers where it's really quite hard to kind of engage with the sector to work through a kind of voluntaristic approach. So I think you're right. When there's a small number of big businesses, they have a lot of power and it's hard for government to hold out. But on the other hand, when you've got a small number of businesses, it's easier for government to get them to agree to do something together because you can actually get all the players in the room. So that's something interesting for future conversation. What you say is very true. And, and you know, you can never get these balances perfectly right. Every sector and every bit has its has its faults. The question is, which faults do you prefer? Yes. Let's end, Joe, by going to the very end of the book where you lay out in kind of very, just a few pages, but, but yeah, in a beguiling way, a kind of vision for, you know, almost how one would renew the faltering liberal pluralist project. And it is faltering as we know in so many ways and you don't use this phrase but i think if i was going to use a phrase i would i think i'd refer to it as a kind of civic corporatism so that in the 70s and 60s and 70s we had a corporatism and that corporatism then fell out of favor as part of the kind of problems of the seven economic problems of the 70s and the sense that this was to use a phrase we used in the uk people in smoke-filled rooms doing deals that the public wasn't really part of it and that it didn't really work. But in a sense, what you're arguing is that we do need a world in which state, the private sector, civil society do work more effectively together to accept a shared responsibility in terms of the achievement of progress for the good of society and a shared set of kind of rules and assumptions that underpin it. And that Within that, of course, political competition takes place. But it's not a return to the smoke-filled rooms of the 70s. It's a kind of civic corporatism because this will not be about people sitting down and kind of doing deals together. This will be a public process by which the different major pillars of society find ways of sharing and working more effectively on a common agenda. Would that be a a reasonable description of what you're saying at the end, Joe? Yes, I think I think that's right. I think what I would say is <clears throat> that first of all, we need an acceptance or a, a recognition or, or maybe a debate before we get there of what the purpose of business is. And throughout this period of financialized capitalism, business developed a somewhat perverse, some businesses, let's put it that way, developed or our culture developed a, a somewhat strange, perverse view of what business is about and the idea that the role of business is to make money. And that was accepted by all of us. You know, it was the legacy of the 80s and 90s. I'm not pointing fingers at anybody. We were all drawn into that. That is changing. And I think once we start from the premise that business has a much more important role to play in society than just making money and making money for shareholders and and giving big salaries to its uh, executives, that the role of business is very much more important to all of us than that because they play a role in the kind of society we live in. Then once you have that premise, everything else kind of flows from that. And I think the corporatism of the 60s and 70s that you mentioned We couldn't possibly return to that, even if we tried, because in those days, power was very concentrated and decision making was very opaque. Well, those days are over, you know, with social media, with everybody whistleblowing, with a much more powerful and investigative 
civil society around, it's simply impossible to return to that kind of smoke-filled rooms idea. So I think, although the principles of that corporatism, in my view, were right, the implementation of it in those times thus didn't work. But today, everything is much more out in the open. Power is, is somewhat, although not totally, but it's somewhat more dispersed. More people, more groups have voices, and they are very different voices. So I think that if we accept the premise that we all have a role, business, government, society, civil society, customers, citizens, that we all have a role in pushing forward to create a better society, then in a complex system where everybody influences everybody else and where today there's a lot more transparency and a lot more accountability than there has been in the past, then things will push in that direction. And I think that the successful businesses are the ones that ride that wave, that go with that flow, as opposed to trying to resist it and you know go back to the 80s kind of you know free for all as long as we make money, or the 60s and 70s, let's get back together, smoke a cigar in a smoke-filled room and do a deal. So I think I think it's a question of riding this wave and all parts of society accepting that they have an important role to play in the endless debate of what constitutes a better society and their role within it. Final question, Joe. I don't think anyone could do anything other than admire the book because I think it's, as I say, very well written, very powerful. But I speak to business leaders, and still, when I use the P word, the political word, I see a sneer or a shudder. What's the response been from the business community to the book? So far, so good. But that may be a skewed perspective, because it may be that the business people that I mostly interact with are, you know, not necessarily representative. I don't know. You know, we all live in our bubble. We all associate with people who tend to think like us. I haven't yet had any bricks thrown through my window. I haven't yet had any angry phone calls from people. But, you know, my spread of people I'm interacting with is maybe not yet broad enough. But, you know, we'll see. Let's wait and see and explore a little bit more. The book's only been out a month. So, you know, let's see. I'd like to engage with some more people. I think what you say, the kind of sneer at the very mention of the word political, is going to be hard to overcome because it's kind of a knee-jerk reaction. But I hope that one can engage in a discussion to redefine how people understand that word. Well, Joe, thanks so much. The New Political Capitalism, How Businesses and Societies Can Thrive in a Deeply Politicised World is an important and very readable book. And I just should end by saying that those of you who've listened to the last few minutes who are under 40 and wonder what these references are to smoke-filled room, it's not a reference to, to diabolical forces. It's because, of course, in the 70s, 
there would be bosses and they'd smoke cigars. There would be trade union leaders and they would smoke cigarettes. And of course, there would be the prime minister who at that time would have been Harold Wilson, who was most famous of all for always smoking a pipe. Goodbye. That's it for this episode of Bridges to the Future. We'll be back soon with more insights and analysis. But if you've enjoyed this conversation, I'd be so grateful if you could rate and review it in your podcast app. But for now, thanks from me, Matthew Taylor. This was a Tempo and Talker production for the RSA. We are the RSA. We enable the game changers of today to shift systems, challenge norms, and create impact where it's needed most. Visit the rsa.org slash approach to find out how. And let's make change happen. 